0: The Biden administration's finalization of the Waters of the U.S. or WOTUS rules was released on December 30th of 2022. This
1: new rule is just the latest version of a long, long history of confusion and regulatory uncertainty. We don't believe that the federal government has the authority to affect management over features that don't contribute to downstream water quality
0: mary thomas hart chief counsel for ncba is my guest as we discuss how the biden update differs from what's been in place the concern on subjectivity for rule interpretation and the irony that there's a case regarding wotus currently before the supreme court but
1: maybe our larger concern is procedural and the fact that epa and the army corps of engineers thought it appropriate and thought it necessary to finalize a rule while the Supreme Court is actively considering this exact issue.
0: Irony or strange coincidence on the latest WOTUS rules you decide on this episode of The Working Ranch Radio Show. And we welcome you back here again. This is the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills, and we're glad to have you joining us here uh, for our program today. This is episode 101, and if you're listening here on the radio, we thank you for tuning in and hope you stay with us. If you have downloaded the program and you are listening through your uh, favorite podcast provider, we appreciate you doing that. Let us know also. Give us a thumbs up. Leave comments. as uh, That's always helpful for us. And uh, By the way, if you missed last week's show, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. Why Junior Shouldn't Come Back to the Ranch. Go back and take a listen to that one. A great show with Dallas Mountain joining me on that one. For our program today, though, we're going to be looking at waters of the U.S. WOTUS, as it's often referred to, and it really has been an issue that's been around an awful long time. It's been in front of the Supreme Court on multiple occasions. It seems like every administration that comes in, Republican, Democrat, they tweak the rules in such a way uh, that they want to see tweaked. And it's just getting to to a point where it's, to, to be quite honest with you, a little bit ridiculous. And so we're going to be talking about the latest update that has come down from the Biden administration. Mary Thomas Hart, Chief Counsel for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, will be in to talk about that and, and what these latest rules mean. Also, we're going to talk about some other elements to that and some of the uh, concern over the subjectivity of interpretation of those rules. And, and like I said in the opening, also kind of a coincidence or we're going to call it a coincidence to be nice here in the fact that it is in front of the Supreme Court right now and what that would all mean in light of these latest rules. A great conversation as Mary Thomas Hart with NCBA joining me for that. Of course, here uh, later on in this next segment, we're going to be talking with Travis Christman and Jeremy Martin of Stockman Source Bull Sale out of Nebraska, talking to them about uh, their operation there and uh, how that relates to us as commercial cattlemen out here and what their doing there so be sure to join us in our next segment for that and of course meteorologist Don Day joining us at the very end of our program as we take a look at our long-term weather yeah a lot of rain in California in the west coast and uh, pretty mild for many of us east of the uh, continental divide but that looks like it's going to be changing we'll talk a little bit about that right now though let's check in with the captain Tim O'Byrne he is publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine and is working hard on the next issue of Working Ranch Magazine but let's check in with him now for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents.
2: Hey, Justin. Hey, all you lovely Working Ranch radio show podcast listeners out there. You're so loyal. Thanks to you, we are climbing dangerously close to the 200,000 thousand cumulative download mark of this great podcast justin congratulations to you and folks keep on listening now uh i know a lot of you've been going through your jan feb issue uh, that dropped here about a week and a half ago into your mailbox And we here at Working Ranch, the team, we are working diligently on the March issue, which is coming right up here pretty quick. And as I'm editing away, I come across uh, the nutrition article for that issue. Gilda V. Bryant writes this column, and she has been for the last 15 years. She's absolutely fantastic. She gets it right every single time. And there's a little kind of a quote that comes up here uh, in this article that kind of caught my eye. It's from, uh, the source is Dusty Abney, Ph.D. beef nutritionist with Cargill Animal Nutrition. And he says, some producers underfeed cows during the third trimester to prevent dystocia caused by a large fetus. Now, Justin, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, I don't know if I knew this part, though. Numerous studies bull genetics determine the calf's birth weight. did you know that? Well, if you did and I figured you might Justin because you know everything there is to know about cows or, or if you don't know about it it ain't worth knowing and uh, I, I throw this out to the listeners they want to comment on on this and, and maybe get back to us on their thoughts on the whole on the whole idea. Back to you in the booth, Justin.
0: Well, thanks, Captain. And I don't know about that uh, comment there. If I don't know about it, it must not be important. I am a long ways from being an expert on very many things here. So, uh, But I I thought your comment there regarding the genetics of the the bull side of the genetics having a lot of impact on the uh, birth weight of these calves. I know as an industry, we have sure put an awful lot of weight in that. Um, I don't know if that's quite right, because I've also heard a lot of old experienced ranchers that say, you know, it's not just the bull that's part of that calf. There is a a dam site as as well. And so I don't know. We'll see how that plays out. Appreciate your comments on that and being a part of uh, our program here today and appreciate the work on the next issue of Working Ranch Magazine as well. By the way, folks, Working Ranch Magazine, uh, you can go to workingranchmag.com. If you don't have a subscription started, you can get it started there. And also be sure to check us out on social media. We have a, a lot of activity that goes out on Facebook and Instagram. And so I encourage you to follow us In those areas as well, we'll stay with us coming up after the break. Travis Christman, Jeremy Martin with Stockman Source Bull Sale, will be joining us as we talk about uh, this time of the year. We are heading into bull buying season, and as uh, many of us, are commercial cow calf producers out there, and from that focus of things, we want that balanced attack. We're going to be talking a little bit about how we uh, look at low uh, low cost efficient type uh, program. Yet at the same time, we don't want wimpy stuff going to the rail either. We need something that's going to put some meat on the rail and we're going to be talking with Travis and Jeremy a little bit about that and of course their sale coming up on February 4th. Stay with us we'll be back with more on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this.
3: your cow-calf herd data in a notebook, keep it in the cloud with Performance Ranch, and say so long to decoding handwritten notes. Performance Ranch is an easy-to-use app that simplifies record-keeping and makes decision-making easier. Keep track of herd inventory, monitor health records, and manage costs, all from your iPad or iPhone. Group texting important herd data? Delete it. Use Performance Ranch instead. Go to PerformanceLivestockAnalytics.com and be the first to know when Performance Ranch is ready to launch.
0: And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Uh, as we head now into a segment here, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of getting to this time of the year. I know we're just getting to 2023 underway, but bull sale season is going to be right up and on us. And in light of that, I've got a couple guys joining us here today. Uh, Travis Christman, Jeremy Martin, and uh, they're with Stockman Source uh, Bull Sale uh, coming up on February 4th. But uh, before we get into some of the details on that, guys, I, it was interesting as you and as as we were visiting before we went on air here just just looking at as as guys are heading into this time of the year some things that's probably would be some things to consider as they're looking at buying bulls and i know one of the things that we've really looked at uh, i know if folks listen to my show quite a bit you know i'm kind of a low input operator and i really and i really believe that it's very important as as a ranch that we look at being having a profitable uh, operation and i know in talking with you guys one of the things jeremy that that you feel is important in in these programs is a balanced uh, program and really raising uh, cattle that can be uh, low input but yet still produce.
4: Yeah, Justin, uh, I would 100% echo what you said. I mean, we, we hear a lot of people giving lip service to running cows like the commercial cow herd, and for us, we basically – you know, run cows that we can make money on by retaining the steers or selling them at weaning or sending them through the feedlot. And then the seed stock deal is kind of an offshoot of that. I mean, we started out just kind of raising bulls for ourselves and uh, for our neighbors, and it it's just grown from there. Um, we sell a, a bull that's a little bit older, and it's mostly because, uh, you know, we desire to calve these cows and april may or in travis's case in the fall just you know from a labor and a feed standpoint it's what fits our our best system and allows us to still create a steer calf that's economically viable mm-hmm. travis your thoughts
0: on that
5: yeah we uh both of our systems are kind of set up so we can be able to utilize uh the resources that are available and that'd be a uh, corn residue is uh, is a cheap feed source down here for us and if we can graze that with our cows all winter and we aren't farrowing them through a barn in January or February and having to feed you know a full lactating ration uh, you know that that allows us to operate like our uh, commercial customers do and and just the cattle uh, I think it just helps us to select for more uh, doability and longevity cows that can go out and forage have some heart girth and and flesh and ability is is pretty much a necessity for
0: us-hmm as we were talking before, I'd asked, uh, Jeremy, I'd asked you about the research that you had done as uh, you have your doctorates in reproductive and physiology from University of Nebraska. And when you were doing that with Dr. Rick Funston, uh, just some elements that you were looking at in terms of a balance and realizing that if we can get uh, these heifers to a point to where they're fairly low input, you feel from the bull side of things, we need to be looking at that same thing.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, uh, very little doubt anymore that uh, you know we can develop a heifer pretty pretty extensively and uh, you know make her go learn to be a cow and improve her longevity as a result. Um, you know, like I told you before, there's there's things such as injury and 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 uh, fighting and so on that uh, influence the world of bulls that probably don't have cows, right? But setting that aside, we don't think there's any reason that these uh, bulls aren't the same way, and it just Kind of letting them grow up, letting them experience uh, a winter of cornstalk grazing and a summer of uh, being on grass and a group of a hundred plus of, of their contemporaries. Uh, we think they learn a lot about just being a being a cow or being a bull and and uh, how to take care of themselves. and Our customers tell us that it's working. I mean, they don't uh, they don't have to babysit them. They don't have to pamper them. The bulls just kind of go do their job and. And it's not like they're not ever going to lose any weight during breeding season, but, uh, you know, they can pull them off cows and kick them back out somewhere and get them back in shape without any extra feed.
0: Mm-hmm. Jeremy, you touched on something there and I'm going to have, to have Travis answer this question here a little bit because I it's it's actually been a topic of a conversation that we've had here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. And it was one of the things that I feel is one of the biggest uh, losses in our ranches that we that is hard to really put a pencil to, and that is longevity. And, and if we can keep these cows, these bulls an extra year, year two longer than what we are now, could be a considerable amount of profit back into the ranch. So, from a longevity standpoint, Travis, uh, that that's a pretty big deal in what you guys are trying to do.
5: Yeah, for sure. Justin, you know, sometimes we'll get an argument that, well, if we're, if we're going to buy a two-year-old bull, you know, we're going to get one less year out of him than we would a yearling, And, and I totally disagree with that. And that being the way ours are developed. Um, we got several of these guys, I mean, without injury that, you know, just happens from time to time, no matter what, but, uh, these bulls are going six, seven years. I mean, last summer I had to stop on the road. One of the neighbor's bulls was in the pasture and we got big six inch freeze brands on these bulls. So it's easy to figure out who they are. And that particular bull, uh, was nine years old and he was still using him. So, uh, anyway, uh, th- th- this product works, this will be our 10th annual bull sale. We've, uh, we've been selling them privately, I think seven, seven, eight years before that. So it's, uh, the system is not new it seems to be working for guys and, and we stand behind the product
0: mm-hmm. before we get into the details of of some of the sale one more thing i want to i want to touch on too because i know jeremy uh when we were talking before we went on air here was what i was pulling out of our conversation really that as as commercial guys out there and i'm one of these guys that's wanting you know i don't know that i want real extremes one way or the other on things i just really want to i want to a balanced breeding program or, and cattle. I want cattle that are efficient out on the range as, as you and as we were talking before. I mean, your your heifer calves are having to dig through a little bit of snow. We haven't had as much snow, but our heifer calves are, are out on grass and, and, and mineral uh, protein blocks. So that balance is, is critical. And I think from a commercial standpoint that I find myself in and, and many folks that are in the commercial type deal, we really want that balanced approach. We want that low input, but we also need a Lot of we, we want to see that carcass ability too. And so that was something I, in your focus, has really been important.
4: Yes, sir. We, we fed these cattle every year for several years. Um, you know, we, we feed a lot of customer cattle also uh, out of our bulls. And, you know, backing up to the heifer calf thing, I mean, we're, we're just very, commercially focused in the sense that we'll run genomics on all the registered heifers and and we'll look at that. But first thing they got to do is go out and survive and and breed in a 20 or 25 day breeding season as a heifer. And, you know, we're never going to pick a favorite out of them until they're about eight years old because we think cow depreciation is a really big cost in this industry and, and we're doing our best to beat it. Um, and we have a lot of you know, eight plus year old cows in production. And so we think it's working. The flip side of that is we take these steers to the feedlot. We'll, we'll winter our steer calves and our bull calves together on corn stalks until, you know, sometime from March through May, depending on the year and whether we have some rye that we can get rented or something like that. And then, uh, you know, we'll feed every steer, uh, every coal heifer, every pregged open heifer. And we want those steers. We expect those steers to leave the feedlot weighing 1,600 pounds um, to yield, at, you know, 63 and a half or more. And, you know, we're we're trying to pick up as absolute much carcass premium as we can on the cattle, too. So um, our experience has been we can't skinny down the bottom line enough to make a cow um, profitable without some top-line premium.
5: Mm-hmm. I would just add to that, um, yeah, I mean – the. The top line is extremely important, and and we're getting genomics on our entire cow herds, our cat, entire calf crops every year. But in, in addition to that, we've got a progeny test herd, and we're getting we're taking genomics on all those steer calves, and then that gets paired with the actual harvest uh, data and the gain data. So um, I think it it makes the genomics of our of our herds even more valuable because it ties together all that real information. And it's not just based on a bunch of EPDs. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and the genomics thing, I'll tell you, it's something that, I, that uh, we've, I've had shows on here before, but I think it'd be, you know, some point might have to get you guys back on the phone here to, to say, okay, from a, you know, how are you, how are you using it? What, how's it, how's it working in your operation from a real life standpoint? Um, it's one thing to hear about it from people selling the program, but it's one thing to, for, with visiting with guys that are, that are doing it and utilizing it. So uh, real quick guys, um Let's talk about the sale coming up at Stockman Source, February 4th. Uh, go ahead, Jeremy, and give us a little bit more information on it.
4: Yeah, February 4th uh, at the ranch here, southwest and north, Platte, about 35 miles. Um, pretty low-key, uh, quiet auction, uh, which in terms of speed will be real similar to an auctioneer, but it's very transparent. There's no question who's in and who's out um and uh we'll have the bulls pinned up here that day um sure welcome you to show up any time you know late morning to noon and and take a look at the bulls we'll start the auction at three o'clock and we'll sell some uh commercial bread heifers at the end and and uh have a nice steak supper and and a good visit with some some pretty sharp ranchers that'll be here
0: you bet uh travis real quick uh just genetic wise we're looking at angus sim angus type bulls is that correct
5: yeah we're gonna we're gonna offer a hundred coming to your old sim angus bulls and then there'll be 35 uh coming to your old angus bulls and um yeah i would just add that we'll have a catalog it should be available online here maybe as we speak or within a day or two and And there will be videos available on these bulls um, on DV Auctions' website, I would add we don't clip the bulls. The What you see is what you get, and they'll look the same a year from now, but probably better um, mm-hmm. in most cases. So,
0: All right. Their website, uh, if you want more information, ssbeefbulls.com for Stockman Source bull sale coming up February 4th. That will also be on DV Auction, and that'll be starting at 3 p.m. Uh, Central Standard Time. So thanks, guys, for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Appreciate it.
4: Thank you, sir. Take care. Yep. Thank you, Justin.
0: And again, that was Jeremy Martin and Travis Chrisman, partners in the Stockman Source Bull Sale. That website, one more time, ssbeefbulls.com. You can find more information there or go in there to request a catalog as well. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about the Biden administration's updated rules on the waters of the U.S. and what that means to us as ranchers when we come back on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Starting off in the right direction is essential to gaining an advantage later when you go to market your calves. And I have proof that the right direction is with Sim Angus sired calves. A 2020 study by K-State showed that Sim Angus sired steer calves earn more at sale time than all other breed identified sired groups with at least 50 lots represented on Superior Livestock's 2020 summer sales. The proof's right there. For low risk, high potential calves with earning potential, be confident that Sim Genetics will give you more per head, period. Stand strong, Simmental. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills as we head now into our feature topic for today's show. And we're going to be exploring, as we said in our opening of our show here today, really a topic that has been around for quite some time. But uh, I I think much like what we're dealing with this issue, maybe uh, not quite a full understanding of it, but also at the same time knowing that it it is going to affect us as ranchers across the country. And that is the uh, the waters of the U.S. And it uh, came into being, of course, many years ago, with the clean water act of 1972 and some of that as that began to be implemented but the whole issue has always been revolving around definition of what that would actually mean joining us today is mary thomas hart chief counsel for the national cattleman's beef association first of all mary thomas i do appreciate you joining us from all the way back in washington dc to talk about this issue Thanks so much for having me on. So, as you and I were talking off air before, I, I wanted to back up just a little bit and, and let's just get some foundational issues about this. As I was talking about it, it it's been, for lack of better words, a little bit muddy water uh, as in in terms of trying to define it. And and of course, it's it's been around for quite some time. But uh, it really, this is an issue that is very impactful to us as ranchers. Oh,
1: absolutely, and. Yeah, I think to really kind of appreciate and understand where we are today in you know, January 2023, we kind of have to go back to the, the root of the issue, right, which is the Clean Water Act passed in 1972 um, during a, a pretty massive wave of new environmental statutes. We saw NEPA, we saw the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Air Act, and then the Clean Water Act. Um, and Congress was really on a mission to... Um, give the administration give these regulatory agencies some 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 real teeth so that they could go after um rivers that were literally on fire i I think you know it's so it's tough to maybe remember Mm -hmm. what what our natural resources looked like before the clean water act but but there was a lot going on and so um congress really really wanted to give this newly formed environmental protection agency Some tools that it could use. So, um, in writing the Clean Water Act, the uh, Congress asserted federal jurisdiction over the navigable waters and defined navigable waters as waters of the United States. Now, that is truly a non defining definition (laughs) um, for the term navigable waters. And ever since the passage of the Clean Water Act, We've been trying to figure out what Congress meant when it wrote Waters of the U.S. The Supreme Court has contemplated it four times now Um, since the passage of the Clean Water Act. There have been 13 different regulatory definitions of WOTUS, um, which means a new definition on average about every three and a half years. Mm. So. If you're a landowner and and trying to plan how to, you know, manipulate your land to make it more efficient, how to, you know, effectively maintain these water features, you don't have a lot of certainty when it comes to, you know, what's going to be subject to federal permitting and, and what you can do on your own. So, you know, I think this really is this new rule is just the latest version of a long, long history of confusion and regulatory uncertainty for for stakeholders, including farmers and ranchers.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and let's talk about what just came down because uh, I guess there's several maybe tiers to this conversation that we have. What just came out, and, and I know many of the agricultural groups disappointed in what the Biden administration just came down the end of December of, or end of December of 2022. Let's hit that real quick, and then we can get into some other discussion.
1: Of course, I think it's important to note that you know. NCBA and and I think all agricultural groups and producers appreciate what the Biden administration was trying to do, right? The Biden administration recognized that the 2015 Obama rule went way too far as far as asserting jurisdiction over a lot of these features. It also acknowledged that the the Trump administration's rule, the Navigable Waters Protection Rule, um, was a bit limited in, you know, in their opinion, Um, So they really were trying to find some middle ground between those two rules, the the two most recent definitions of WOTUS. Mm -hmm. And they made a lot of changes from their proposal, right, especially for the agricultural community. The proposed rule that we saw in December 2021 had no agricultural exemptions, um, was a very scaled back definition and, and attempted to really give. Um, or put the power in the hands of kind of individual inspectors to make a lot of case-by-case determinations. Obviously, that's concerning from from a regulatory certainty perspective. Um, So to kind of summarize the final rule, I'd say that, you know, in CBA, when we look at any definition of WOTUS, we're really looking for three things, right? How are ephemeral features treated or, or features that only carry water after a precipitation event? Um, how are isolated features treated, and are there agricultural exemptions? So with this final rule, we got one out of three, right? <laughs> we got some helpful agricultural exemptions for farm features like stock ponds, prior converted cropland, and, and certain farm ditches. Um, but there is no exclusion for ephemeral features, and there is no exclusion for isolated features, which means that not, they're not all definitely subject to regulation. Mm -hmm. They are all subject to a jurisdictional determination, which means that someone from your State Department of Environmental Protection or your State Department of Ag or your uh, or the Army Corps of Engineers district office will need to come out and determine if that feature is federally jurisdictional before you can, you know, manipulate it in any way.
0: Okay. So does that lay itself a a little bit open to some subjectivity then because of who's going to be inspecting that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the Army Corps of Engineers works really hard, you know, to make sure that their jurisdictional determinations are fairly uniform across the country, right? They they get handbooks, they have a lot of tools and, and they're pretty, um, they are required to kind of stick to those guidelines, to Mm -hmm. stick to those handbooks. But yeah, of course, when you have, you know, multiple sets of eyes looking at features across the country to make those jurisdictional determinations, there's going to always be some variation in how those handbooks, how those guidelines are interpreted, right, what is considered, um, what is considered a, a hydrologic feature, what is considered um, hydrologic soil. Um, those are all different types of, um, I guess, factors that go into determining whether a feature, especially when you're talking about a wetland, is going to be subject to federal jurisdiction. So, you know, I think there's certainly the risk of, of some variation, some level of subjectivity, um, I, I don't want to put it all on, you know, inspectors and say that they're you know, bad people. I, I really don't think that that's the case. I, I don't think that, you know, for the most part, I, I don't think inspectors are out to get us or anything. But I think when you have any kind of rule like this that allows this kind of pretty high level, of case-by-case case determinations, that there, there's going to be some subjectivity in making those determinations.
0: Yeah, and I, I would agree. I don't know that we want to pinpoint out that it's really going to rest entirely on the inspectors or the Army Corps or those, or those folks. I actually think it's probably <laughs> higher up that can actually put some of that more into into some definition for what they ex- are expected to be looking at. And I and I think really what this goes back to initially, which has been the concern all along, is just, you know, how far-reaching is this going to be? I mean, we're, we're concerned as landowners, you know, how much how much power are they taking away from us?
1: Right. And I, I think, you know, the Clean Water Act was clearly written to regulate water features. Right. But when you pull in things like isolated features, like, you know, certainly regional features like prairie potholes are an excellent example or playas, vernal pools those isolated features that really have no impact on downstream water quality because they're not contributing to downstream water quality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think those features are a are big question for us, you know, when it comes to, you know, what, what gives EPA jurisdiction to regulate those features because the Clean Water Act is really focused on protecting the quality of these navigable waters, right? Ensuring that that traditionally navigable waters are, you know, protected and, and healthy. Um, but if you're talking about features that really don't contribute in a significant way to that downstream water quality, then in our opinion, that's where you draw the line, not between, you know, regulation and non-regulation, but I think, you know, more accurately between federal and state management, right? Yeah. And, you know, if the state manages or the state chooses, To manage those isolated features or manage those ephemeral features, they're more, they're better equipped to do so, right? They understand the landscape better, they understand landowners better, more likely, um, and so are able to kind of work with landowners in a more effective way to manage those features. We don't think the federal government has the ability to effectively manage features with such regional variation, and quite frankly, we don't believe that the federal government has the authority to Affect management over features that don't contribute to downstream water quality.
0: Mm-hmm. You know that's a good topic there in itself, uh, and we've just got a little bit of time for we need to take a break here. But that is, and I'm and I'm a real big proponent of states' rights by all means. But we also see some of some of these states that are extreme on some of these kind of issues, especially water type issues, and whether you know that uh, little swampy patch over there is a protected spot or or whether it's you know, not. And that of course would go back to some state deals. So I mean that's I guess there's some there's some issues there that kind of plays into this that does affect us as ranchers depending on how the state wants to move forward in their protection of these issues.
1: I think it's it's absolutely a part of the conversation, right? But we have to, you know, look at that and from my perspective, I'm I am only charged with, you know, making sure that the Clean Water Act is is doing its job and only doing its job, not, you know, attempting to do the work of states um, and state environmental programs. So, you know, when I look at the Clean Water Act, it is easy to tell that the Clean Water Act was written as a cooperative federalism statute, right? It it was meant to give the federal government pockets of jurisdiction but then leave a lot of that work up to the states, right? A lot of the Clean Water Act is providing funding to state programs, providing, you know, technical expertise to state programs, writing out, you know, different kind of, especially um, pollutant discharge programs, kind of writing those up at the federal level and then handing it off to the states Mm -hmm. for implementation. So there is a lot of federalism and cooperative federalism really built in To the structure of the clean water act now there are certainly states that go above and beyond you know i'm i'm a florida native and and florida has very strict you know groundwater regulations and water quality monitoring regulations especially for agricultural operations but i think it's a good example of because the state government is closer to the constituents and closer to the landowners the state governments often you really take the time to work with landowners and make sure that whatever regulations or programs are being implemented are not only good for the environment, but good for the people that are living on the land, right? So yeah. using Florida as an example, um, the state of Florida actually pays ranchers to filter water through their ranches, They and then they measure phosphorus coming onto the ranch and then measure phosphorus coming off of the ranch and pay landowners for the phosphorus that's being stored on those rangelands. So I think that's just one example of how, you know, states can take a much more unique approach um, to addressing issues um, in a way that maybe the federal government can't.
0: Mm -hmm. My guest today is Mary Thomas Hart, chief counsel for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And we're talking about waters of the U.S. WOTUS is a lot of times you hear it referred to as. And when we come back, we've got one more segment with Mary Thomas. And we're going to talk about the timing because uh, the Biden administration just put out some things uh, here at the end of 2022, because uh, the timing of this is also interesting because there's also a, an issue in front of the Supreme Court right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Mary Thomas more about that. When we come back on The working ranch radio show
3: set up the next generation for a productive lifetime with Zimpro Avella 4 achieve productive success in your cows with 20% increased conception rate and a 16-day tighter calving interval calves from cows supplemented with Zinpro hit the ground running with improved immunity and 28 more pounds at weaning allow your cows and calves to perform to their full potential with Zinpro Avella 4
0: And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. My guest today is Mary Thomas Hart, Chief Counsel for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And we're talking about uh, recently that the Biden administration put out some an updated uh, ruling on the waters of the U.S., or WOTUS, uh, as you often hear it referred to. It's been an issue, it's been around for quite some time since the Clean Water Act of 1972. And we had a good definition and some conversation about that in the previous segment. Mary Thomas, I want to get to now uh, because when this came out i guess maybe a little bit of a head scratcher that the biden administration come out with some definition in a way because there is a a very large case that's sitting in front of the uh, supreme court right now where a ruling is expected to come out that might provide a little bit more definition to to that so let's let's talk about that and and where we're at from a timing perspective in relation to what the biden administration just recently put out
1: Great point, Justin. So, you know, when the Biden administration announced this final rule on December 30th, I think NCBA's concerns were, were two pronged, right? The fir- first was substantive. And we kind of we've, mm. we've talked about some of our substantive concerns with the final rule, but maybe our larger concern is procedural. And the fact that EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers thought it appropriate and thought it necessary to finalize a rule while the Supreme Court is actively considering this exact issue. right? No one can look into a crystal ball. No one knows what the Supreme Court is going to say in its opinion in the Sackett case, um, but there is a decent chance that the Supreme Court could issue an opinion that completely you know, ties up EPA and Army Corps' final rule, and they'll have to go right back to the drawing board to, to put together yet another definition of WOTUS, so not only does this, you know, rule finalization in the midst of a Supreme Court case um, make things even more confusing for regulated stakeholders, but to us, it just looks like a, a an ineffective use of of government funds. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and I, you know, of course, we can theorize, you know, a lot of different ways about this, and and that's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, wow, what a what a poor use of, of our bureaucrats' time. Not that they've ever really been too concerned about that, but <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it's just like I mean, we've got this coming out. Do you think? I mean, is there a political play in this? Two reasons. One, when it came out, the the thirtieth of of December, uh, of course, ahead of a, a Supreme Court ruling. Is there? political edge that the Biden administration is looking at on this?
1: Great question. I think that there's absolutely a bit of a bit of tension between the administration and the Supreme Court right now. And, you know, even, you know, on December 30th, 2022, the midterms are over and we are officially in a presidential election cycle, which is wild to think about. But I think, you know, this administration is going to be thinking about everything it can do in the next two years to shore up support for a future presidential election and kind of pushing about pushing back against the Supreme court is a really effective way for them to kind of gain support, especially with their base, Mm -hmm. um, following some recent other unrelated Supreme court decisions. Yeah. Um, but you made a good point. I I kind of already said it, that (laughs) seems like a waste of government resources. Um, But the Sackett case was really interesting and and unique. And I think that's part of the reason why it's so difficult to know where the court's going to take this. You know, when the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Sackett on October 3rd, 2022, six of the nine justices on the bench were hearing arguments related to WOTUS, are considering the definition of WOTUS for the first time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have three prior Supreme Court decisions on the definition of WOTUS. But really, the consensus during those oral arguments in October was that those three prior cases haven't provided the clarity needed either for the people writing the rule or the people that are having to comply with the rule. Um, Those prior decisions have just created more confusion by the end of oral arguments i think it was justice gorsuch who said that he didn't want to hear the word significant anymore there has been so much <laughs> conversation about the phrase significant nexus he said you know I, I don't even want to say that word anymore i don't want to hear it so i think there's a decent chance that this supreme court in the sackett case could give us an entirely new standard for what is considered waters of the us could throw out those you know tests that we've come to uh, you know, we, we know we have to work with, but we certainly don't enjoy them. Significant nexus and relative permanence. Um, throw those out and, and really kind of start from scratch. And I think that could be really interesting. It, it would certainly turn um, this EPA and this final lotus rule on its
0: head. Yeah well it almost makes you wonder again you hate to speculate too far because you could speculate yourself to just a total frustration that you know if they put this in place uh, fully kind of expecting that there could be a real big turnover or change in the in the in in how it's going to be taken further down the road um, if they get some stuff into place now it's going to take one to two years for that to work out of the system and so they've kind of done some things already. I, I want to quickly look at what's in front of the the Supreme Court right now. It's the Sackett versus is the EPA um, real quick? Kind of give us the de- what what we're looking at there. What they're going to be deciding on with that?
1: Sure. So the facts in Sackett, and this is actually the second time that the Sackett family has been to the Supreme Court litigating related to the Clean Water Act, which is very interesting. It's a couple in Idaho, and they bought a lake. They bought some lakeside property um, with the intention of building their dream home. Right. Not not an agricultural fact pattern. But, you know, brings up this larger question of when is a wetland considered adjacent? And that may not seem like it directly, you know, has, has a direct interplay with the definition of WOTUS. But this question of adjacency and, you know, how far does a feature have to be away from traditional navigable waters in order for it to be jurisdictional or in order for it to not be jurisdictional? That's the question that's at play here. And so in considering that adjacency question, the Supreme Court is going to have to consider the larger definition of WOTUS and, and how far that definition reaches beyond just, you know, traditional navigable waters and and onto, uh, onto land, right? Because in recent uh, regulatory definitions of WOTUS, we're not just seeing... The regulation of water features, right? We're seeing the regulation of, of some dry land, um, especially those ephemeral features that maybe carry water, you know, a couple days out of the year. For the most part, that's dry land that now the EPA is, is attempting to assert jurisdiction over. So, you know, I think the, the fact pattern here is really interesting. It is definitely a wetland. The question is whether it is an adjacent wetland, that is subject to federal jurisdiction and, and federal permitting requirements. So um, I, I think it's going to be an interesting, an interesting case to consider and likely we'll get a, a favorable opinion. I'm not sure if the court's going to go as far as to, you know, fully side with the Sackets, but I think we're going to get something that's certainly helpful. Um, but in the last couple of years, we've seen, Justices Kavanaugh and Roberts both side with liberal justices in environmental cases. They're not consistently voting one way when it comes mm-hmm. to these environmental regulatory cases. So they could be some swing votes on the bench. Um, but I think based on oral arguments, we're going to get something favorable. And I think this the Supreme Court really sees the, the larger issue with the lack of certainty in this space right now and, and would really like to put this issue to bed I think they're tired of, of talking about WOTUS, of hearing about WOTUS. um, And I think they'd like to just, you know, put a, put a bow on it and, and be done with it. And I'm sure we all would too.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, as you were saying that, I'm thinking, yeah, we are too. I mean, you know, we're tired of tired of hearing about this and, and I mean, we want it to be favorable. So I, with how it's going to affect agriculture, but at the same time, we do need to get this thing, move on past this, past this whole deal. Um, in regards to that decision, I know you don't know exact timing, but what, what are we looking at? Is it going to happen in June time time frame, or is it going to happen the next three months?
1: I think we're looking at late spring, so um, probably April. We usually get these types of opinions in you know late March um, or April, so that's kind of when I'm expecting it. I, I think the timing of all of this could be very interesting. The final rule from the Biden administration has yet to hit the Federal Register um, and will become final sixty days after it hits the federal register. So right now, if, if it hits the federal register tomorrow and today is January 10th. So if it hit the federal register tomorrow, then we're looking at about, you know, March 10th yeah. to March 12th, um, when that rule goes, becomes effective. So the longer the yeah. EPA waits to get that rule in the federal register, the closer we're running into an effective date that that could really butt up to The Supreme Court issuing their opinion in the Sackett case. So we could see it all kind of converge in one, you know, one week or or a couple of days. um, And that will be that will make for a very busy April.
0: (laughs) Yes, it will. And the game of politics. And I'm going to stress game gamemanship of the timing of all of this. (laughs) Well, Mary Thomas, I do appreciate you joining us to give us a little bit more on this. Uh, I appreciate your insight on it and your work back there on behalf of us as ranchers.
1: Of course. Thank you so much, Justin.
0: Mary Thomas Hart, Chief Counsel for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, joining us here today to talk about this issue of WOTUS. And we're all hoping to see some final, some resolution to this and some definition that we hope is going to be beneficial to many of us here in agriculture. By the way, if you want to follow along when that ruling comes out of uh, the particulars on that, be sure to go to their website at NCBA.org. Now, speaking of NCBA, the 2023 Cattle Convention coming up in New Orleans. In fact, I will be down there for that February 4th first through the third you can find convention information and registration by going to their website Uh, look forward to being down there if you want to look us up we will be in the working ranch magazine booth we will be there be sure to stop by and say hello and look forward to seeing you there in new orleans for the national cattlemen's beef association's 2023 cattle convention we'll stay with us coming up next meteorologist don day joins us as we take a look at our long-term weather Cattle producers, here's a way to put more dollars in your pocket. Put the AmiFirm advantage found in all Gain Smart mineral to work in your cow herd. AmiFirm is the industry leader in increasing fiber digestion. In fact, research shows putting AmiFirm to work increases forage utilization by 10%, reducing overall forage costs and allowing you to graze more animals per acre. That's a big-time return on your investment. To find which Gain Smart mineral formula is right for your herd, heard, visit Gainsmart.com. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills as we take a look at our long-term weather. And joining me now is meteorologist Don Day. And Don, I got to be honest with you. I didn't know if I really wanted to visit with you because I've been enjoying the mild weather that we had. And I knew it sounded like we had the change in weather coming. But real quick, let's kind of look back over the last week or so. And man, oh man, uh, just as what you and I had talked about last weekend on the show, uh, the West Coast, uh, California really got hammered.
6: Boy, have they ever. And uh, there's more hammering to come. They're, they're looking at probably another seven days of these Pacific storms coming on in. And, and I know it's causing a lot of problems, a lot of flooding. Um, but I, I, there's been very little discussion about how badly they need this water. Mm-hmm. And, and when we look at uh, what's happening with the snowpack, And what's happening uh, with the amounts of rain and snow we're seeing is we're essentially going to be able to see the reservoirs in California fill up. And we're going to see a huge runoff, the biggest runoff, uh, at least since 2019, maybe since 2017, in the bigger snowpack basins of the western United States, especially the Sierra Nevada. This is going to pay big dividends down the road. Um, and this is how it goes. Um, you know, some people may be shocked by the intensity of these rains and snows and what they're hearing on the news about the West coast, but that's how the weather works in California. Mm -hmm. You go through these cycles of drought and floods, and you know, what'll happen again after we go through this drought (laughs) pattern, going to a flood pattern, we'll go back into another cycle later on. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of this moisture is also pushing into the interior West as well. So we're seeing really good snowpack conditions in the central and Southern Rockies you know folks talked a lot about, and for good reason, Lake Mead and Lake yeah. Powell. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to see a lot more water going into those reservoirs uh, during the runoff season as well. But since we've been so dominated by this Pacific pattern, Justin, we've had a very big January thaw really over most of the United States since we had that Arctic outbreak in in December.
0: Yeah. And it looks like if really for the coming week, majority of the week, it's going to be pretty mild. But then you do see, as, as you had project, uh, projected earlier, that uh, around the 20th of, the, of this month, we were going to start to see a change. So we're going to be moving away from that Pacific pattern more in, into some of that Arctic. And what is that going to look like?
6: Well, the, the thing is, is that if, if you, we remember, I just mentioned that December cold snap, whether or not it will be as intense as that, we'll see. But what we're going to see is the storms in the Pacific end. We're going to see the jet stream do a major readjustment. And while it has been very mild over a large part of, of the United States and parts of Europe over the last two weeks, there's been cold air reloading up in Siberia and over Greenland. And we're going to see that cold air after the 20th have an opportunity to move south. So a lot of the United States, especially the central and western United States, we're going to go back to some colder weather again to where temperatures here at the end of January and early February will go below average. Now, when you go below average with temperatures that time of year, your <laughs> coldest time of year, that's pretty cold. So folks need to get ready. Livestock interests, especially in the northern plains, central and northern Rockies, this mild weather spell Well, there's only a few days left to it.
0: You bet. Well, that kind of gives us an idea of what we got looking forward. Some point I want to visit here on our show, get a La Nina update. I've got uh, I was reading some other weather information out there. I'm going to share that with you. And uh, I want to reconvene in one of our shows here down the road. And let's get an update of where we think this uh, when we're going to fade completely out that and when El Nino might be coming back and get your take on
6: some of this. Sure, there's a lot to talk about there, and that will be very important to to get a good grasp on that as we go into spring.
0: You bet. All right. Well, Don, thanks for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, that was meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather. If you want to go to his website, you can find more information there at dayweather.com. There's also a link there to his daily video podcast as well. Well, stay with us when we come back. We'll put a wrap on this week's show when we return on The Working Ranch Radio Show.
3: Don't keep your cow-calf herd data in a notebook. Keep it in the cloud with Performance Ranch and say so long to decoding handwritten notes. Performance Ranch is an easy-to-use app that simplifies record-keeping and makes decision-making easier. Keep track of herd inventory, monitor health records, and manage costs all from your iPad or iPhone. Group texting important herd data? Delete it. Use Performance Ranch instead. Go to PerformanceLivestockAnalytics.com and be the first to know when Performance Ranch is ready to launch.
0: And before we head out here today, a quick thank you to some of my guests joining us on our program here today. Mary Thomas Hart, Chief Counsel for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, giving us uh, an update on the latest rules coming out uh, by the Biden administration on waters of the U.S. or WOTUS, as we've heard it said, and kind of anticipating what that Supreme Court ruling that will be coming out this spring at some point that might put to bed some of this muddied water that we've seen on WOTUS. Also, a quick thank you to Travis Christman and Jerry jeremy martin with starkman's source bull sale that sale coming up february 4th there at jeremy and gail martin's ranch 35 miles southwest of north platte nebraska but keep in mind uh, they do offer bull delivery and that's going to be on dv auction so don't let the fact that it's uh, in central southern nebraska be an issue because if you're interested in looking at their bulls you can go uh, bid on it there through dv auction and also of course right now you can go and request a catalog through their website at ssbeefbulls.com real quick just a couple things working on as I said uh, previously a month or so ago still working with Steve Cody on a series of programs on low stress cattle handling and also a show that we're working on and that is in regards to Folks looking at maybe picking up and moving their operation to a different, physically a different part of the country, and some of the things that need to be considered in that uh, as they make that move and uh, how that would affect your operation, especially if you're really trying to make that a profitable operation as you move forward. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me about questions or comments or ideas for shows, my email address is justin.workingranch at gmail.com. The Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine branded number one by America's Ranchers. I'm your host, Justin Mills, and until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long.